The following podcast contains explicit language and mature content. This episode includes some discussion of sexual violence. It might not be appropriate for all listeners. The hardest thing in prison wasn't prison. It was dealing with my daughters. Listening to them on the phone, begging for me to come home. It messes you up. Bad. From Boston, Massachusetts, you're listening to Mass Exoneration. These are the stories of people who were convicted of crimes, crimes they never committed, and what happened next, for them and for the people they had to leave behind. I'm Brian Pilchik. This is Episode 2, Nat. My name is Natalia Kazenza, and I spent 16 years in prison for a crime that I did not commit. Natale Casenza. But since he was a kid, everyone's called him Nat. No, I wasn't the easiest kid in the world. Got in a lot of trouble when I was younger. Um, didn't like to listen to nobody. Still don't. I grew up in uh, Worcester, right on the border of uh, Shrewsbury and Worcester, right off of Route 9. It's a lake separating the two towns, the city of Worcester and the town of Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury kids and Worcester kids never get along with each other. I I used to fight a lot, get in a lot of fights. Um, I'm a short guy, so I was a short kid. It's a tough juggling act with not having that short man syndrome, but knowing that you're tough at the same time. People tend to pick on you because you're a smaller guy. And when Nat got into trouble, it was his dad who was there for him. My name is Peter Cazenza. I'm Nat's father. Me and my father have always been best friends my whole life. He's always drop of a hat there for me. I don't think there's anybody in the world I trust more than him. It's always been like that since I was a kid. Can always count on him. Nat remembers one time there was a fight. He doesn't remember exactly what it was about, but the other kids... They ended up calling their fathers down. And all of a sudden, this guy comes over to me and starts grabbing me. And a big little tussle happened. So I ran inside and just made a phone call to my dad. I was like, yeah, this, this guy's dad just showed up. And within five minutes, he was there for me. Normally, <laughs> because of all the trouble I got into, it's always, what you do now? This instance was, what are you doing putting your hands on my kid? I think that was the real first time I realized how it didn't matter what I did, how he'd be there for me. Peter taught Nat to stand up for himself, but he also taught him to take responsibility, to apologize if he did something wrong. One day, cop comes walking in the barbershop, <laughs> and my brain said, what now? He goes, yes, son, Nat. Boy, what'd he do? Because, no, he didn't do nothing. He says, uh, I ran into him a couple nights ago. There was a little incident. He's very nice. He apologized. I just want to tell you that uh, not many kids that I pick up or break up the fights has that. That kid grew up 
and he had kids of his own. By the time he was 26, Nat was raising two little girls. When the police arrested 26-year-old Nat Casenza, it wasn't for fighting with the Shrewsbury kids. It was for something much, much worse than that. Assault and battery, dangerous weapon, armed burglary, and assault with intent to rob. It was the summer of 2000, and the Worcester police had been investigating a break-in. Some guy broke into some lady's apartment and beat her up while she was naked. The woman had woken up in the middle of the night to find a strange man sitting on the floor in the dark beside her bed. He started hitting her with a hard object. Then he climbed onto the bed. She kicked him. He ran away. It was all over in a couple of seconds. When the police showed up, she told them that the man in her room was not someone she had recognized. It was a white man in his 20s. He wasn't wearing pants, just underwear. He was average height. As she would later clarify, around 5 foot 10. It wasn't a lot to go on. But the police started looking for suspects. And a neighbor gave them Nat's name. Nat lived nearby, in another building in the apartment complex, with his two girls. The neighbor hadn't been getting along with Nat. He complained to the police. Said Nat might be the guy they're looking for. Of course, the thing about Nat is, he's not five foot ten. I'm a short guy. He's five foot three. The police didn't care. They started to build a case against him. They put Nat's picture into a group of nine photos. And those other photos? They were selected because they looked like Nat. The police showed the victim all nine, and they told her that one of them was their suspect. They reminded her someone named Nat Casenza lived in her complex. They asked her to pick out a photo. She picked out Nat. And then she became convinced it was Nat in that dark room. The police arrested him. And they didn't just accuse him of breaking in or hitting her. And the charge changed from intent to rape. I mean, my first reaction is, I mean, I kind of flipped out a little bit when I heard that. Um, when I first got wind of it, it was like, you, you were struck by lightning. You just, you can't think, you can't breathe, you can't function, you know? My first instinct is, how do I help? There is no way. The police took Nat to the station. And from the beginning, Nat was insistent that he didn't do it. But assault with intent to rape? That's a serious charge. If Nat was found guilty, he could go to prison for 20 years. Unless he took a deal. So while this was all going on, I mean, there's probably six or seven different plea bargains in the entire time. Plea bargains. Offers. Deals. Admit you're guilty. Don't fight it. And in exchange, you'll go to prison. But only for a little while. Not 20 years. Seven to ten or eight to ten or something like that. Seven years instead of 20. All he has to do? Say he committed the crime. I'm not taking it. 
Nat thought they'd never prove him guilty. After all, it wasn't him. And then the prosecution found something. The victim, the woman who was attacked, she went back to her apartment. Three weeks after the incident, she went through all her clothes, did some laundry, and found a pair of gym shorts. They're men's shorts. She turned the shorts over to the police, and the police found semen stains. I mean, I made a phone call to my attorney. He said, uh, tells me about this. And so he says, uh, they want to do a DNA test. So I'm like, absolutely bring me in. He's like, well, wait a minute, let's discuss. I go, there's nothing to discuss. let's, let's, Let's go get the DNA done. So they tested the DNA on the shorts and compared it to Nat's DNA. Then the DNA came back. wasn't me. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, all right, that means I'm out then. But that's not how the police and the prosecutor saw it. Sure, the DNA meant that the shorts weren't gnats, but maybe the shorts had nothing to do with the crime. Forget about the shorts. The prosecutor wasn't dropping the case. But he was offering another deal. When that came back, I think he offered me like a two to three. The last plea they offered me before trial was time served. Time served. If Nat says he's guilty, he gets let out. Immediately. In exchange for the time he already served in jail, during the long wait for trial. Which was very hard to turn down at that point. He had been in jail for two years waiting for trial. And I've never been to a trial before. If the trial went bad, he could go to prison for 20 years. Or he could take the deal, go home to his daughters. All it would take was saying he was guilty, that he broke into the victim's apartment and attacked her. This is the biggest decision of Nat's life. And if he turns down the deal, what is he afraid of? Everything. Um... I mean, at this point in my life, I've done some, some time, some county time for stupid stuff. But now this is big boy stuff. This is state prison, um, 20 years. It's a life sentence. Anything over 10 years is a life sentence. I just say I have two daughters. Mother was really never around. At that time, they were um, two and four. I was thinking of them, but I wasn't thinking of them at the same time. Because if I was thinking of them, I should have just took the time served. I could have walked right out of the courthouse regardless of if I did it or not. But at the same time, my pride got the best of me. His dad had taught him that it was important to own up to what you've done. If you did it, you apologize. But Nat didn't do it. He didn't take the deal. He went to trial. At trial, the prosecution downplayed the significance of the DNA and the shorts. They focused on the photo identification. The victim picked out Nat's photo. The police said they didn't pressure her into it. They didn't help her identify him. She did that on her own. 
My head won't hurt such BS. Who, nobody's going to believe that. But like I said, I was young and not experienced as I am now. It was actually a very good choreograph because everybody's going to believe the cops over anybody else on the jury stand. They did. The jury believed the police had solved the case. They found Nat guilty. Guilty of burglary and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. Not the intent to rape, though. They didn't convict him of that. The judge sentenced him to state prison. 12 to 20 years. He should have taken the deal. Nat was sent to the Department of Corrections Processing Unit in Walpole, Massachusetts. That's where guys sent to state prison in Massachusetts start off. Everyone just calls it Walpole. Let me explain Walpole real quick. Um, I remember the first time when I first walked into Walpole. I'm not going to lie, I was scared shitless. Um, just seeing the bars from the floor to the ceiling, and they're probably two-story ceilings. And it just cuts off right in the middle of the hallway, and you just realize you're in a whole different animal. Um, <clears throat> you hear all the stories of Walpole. It's not, a, it's not a not dangerous place. It's one of the most dangerous places around. He had to learn how to talk inside. There are certain words. Certain words that you don't use in prison um, that will get you killed. Um, simple words, uh, punk, bitch. Those words are probably the worst words you can use in prison. Um, out of all the words in the dictionary, those are the worst too. My second day in, in Walpole, I seen somebody stabbed in the neck with a um, toenail clipper. You don't see that. It makes you realize where you actually are and watch everything you do. I think I survived in prison the way I did because of my father. One of the biggest things he ever taught me is respect. Um, I think that's why, I don't know if I want to say adjusted to prison so easily, because prison's mainly about respect. While Nat was surviving on the inside, someone needed to be taking care of his two daughters, Alicia and Bianca. Hello. Hey, Alicia. Hello. Hi. Hey, it's Brian and Nicole. Hello. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Uh, my name is Alicia Casenza. I'm 22 years old, and I'm the daughter of Natal Casenza. Alicia still remembers what it was like when the police took her dad away. She was four years old. Well, it was very late at night. I do remember it being super dark. I don't know if I was in the kitchen when the um, police came in, but I do remember stepping outside of my room and seeing him in handcuffs. I immediately started screaming and crying, asking where he was going, and there was no one there to tell me what was going on. 
Um, but yeah, I just remember a lot of loudness and being very scared and confused, and I had no idea what was going on. Initially, the two girls were going to be taken in by social services. My sister and I were brought to the police station after we were found in a trailer park home. And we were four years old and two years old at that time. Social services, family services were there to take my sister and I into foster homes. But my grandfather said that once he saw my face, it expressed just confusion and like uh, he said I looked really scared and that when he looked at me he knew that he had to become our guardian and that he couldn't walk away with us looking and feeling that way. Her grandfather, Peter. Nat's parents took custody of the girls. It was a pure pleasure. (laughs) He did a phenomenal job. Oh, it was my wife and I I give, I give a lot. I did, I did the heavy lifting, and she did all the brain work. Thank God for her. But at least you do gymnastics. Soccer, um, softball a little bit. Yeah. Mostly soccer. We moved down the Cape. I signed them both up for soccer. Pluto and just didn't have the speed, didn't like it. But Lisa became one of the top players. And then we uh, got into softball. His oldest daughter, she's a natural talent. Oh, I had a great childhood. Um, I can't complain about anything growing up. They gave me everything any kid could possibly want. I had my sister, which was nice. We're only two years apart, so... Thankfully, because they took custody of us, we got to remain together. Otherwise, we would have been placed in separate foster homes and possibly not even know our family now. We lived in Worcester when we were younger. The area was becoming unsafe, just not a good place for kids. So we ended up moving to Cape Cod, and life there was really nice. Um, We lived down the street from a beach. We met a bunch of new friends. Where we lived was really safe. But Nat's parents didn't let the girls forget about their father. My mother, my father, and my two daughters. They brought him up every weekend for my entire uh, sentence. Um, They sacrificed a lot to make sure my kids were involved in my life, um, to keep me involved in their lives. The phone bills are insane alone. I mean, the prices for a phone call is nuts. And I called every day. Um, sometimes a couple times a day, and depending on what two little girls' issues were that day. Uh, and because of that, I became very close with my daughters. So when we were first going, we thought he was in hospital uh, because of the outfits they wore. It kind of looked like, you know, um, the nurse clothing. So we always thought that he was in a hospital. Then when Alicia was eight, her grandparents told her the truth. A lot did change 
in my mind. When I went in there knowing that he was in prison for the first time, I had a lot of questions for him, and I felt a lot of anger, and I began mistrusting him, and I felt that I was lied to for four years, and I couldn't accept that. She talked to friends at school about how she had a dad in prison, how he said he was innocent. I didn't really understand it, so I kind of spoke to them about it because I felt that maybe I wasn't getting the whole truth from my family because they thought I would be hurt and too young to understand. So they kind of made me question my father, second-guess that maybe he is guilty. She got bullied. Unfortunately, the bullying did have a lot to do with not just how tall I was or how broken out my face was, but about how my father was a sex offender. But the more Alicia talked to her family, the more she came to believe that her dad didn't do it. And the look in my grandparents' eyes every time I questioned them, they were so confident and so purely sure that their son did not commit that crime. And every time I brought it up to my father, he would have that same pure confidence. And he would always look me in the eye when he spoke to me. He would answer any question and every question I ever um, brought up to him. I don't think he would be able to face us if he had committed such a crime. I don't think he would be able to face his family or his two daughters the way he did. The girls grew up, became teenagers, kept visiting. But sometimes the guards wouldn't let Nat see them. There were times where we couldn't see my dad for months at a time because he was placed in the hole for a fight that other people initiated. For a short guy like Nat, getting targeted was common, especially since the other guys thought that he might have sexually assaulted a woman in her apartment. Fights would break out, sometimes with other inmates, sometimes with the cops. Either way, Nat would end up in solitary confinement. Segregation. For the first nine years of his sentence, Nat spent most of his time in the hole, completely alone. Hole six by six, someplace. And that's what you got. 23 hours a day. Five days a week, 24 on the weekends. Sometimes he couldn't have visitors. Other times, they let him. One thing about the visits in, in the hole, you're always behind the glass. My first nine years, ten years was behind the glass. I didn't get to hold my kids, give my family hugs, anything. A lot of the times when we went to visit him, he would, it would be glass visits. So we would be on the phone and there would be a huge glass wall between us. They used to do math on the windows when we went to visit have math problems, so he said, all right, what's the problem with this one? Oh, yeah. Blow on the window to make it cloudy. He would make fog, so he would go, as you do in, like, the wintertime, to draw something on a window, and he would always write math problems that he knew we had trouble with, and we learned it differently than he did as a kid, so sometimes we would argue about the steps to take or the right answer and we would explain how we're learning it and then he would understand why it's so hard for us to learn it and he would break it down in an easier way for us to understand it. I thought it was great because 
and learn something. I mean, for 10 years, we were just talking, you know, between the glass and all we could do at the end of a session instead of hug each other was just put our hand up to the glass and, you know, match his as if we were holding it. Having no contact with your loved ones is not, that was the hardest thing for me. Um, It still affects me today, I'm not going to lie. It makes me very, extremely emotional uh, thinking about that. The phone calls, the visits, the saying goodbye. When they're mad at you, or when they're just being kids and just, I don't want to talk to you right now. Breaks your heart. Because it's not like I could just go in their room and be like, what's the matter? What's going on? I got to call back six times to find out what's going on. Nat's youngest daughter took it the hardest. Um, there's a lot of hate towards me from her for not being there, from, which is extremely understandable. Which is extremely, is extremely aggravating because... It's not like I chose not to be there. And then, one day, they took Nat out of solitary. My first contact visit was very nerve-wracking. Nervousness. Anxiety was through the roof. Uh... I didn't know if my kids would want to hug me. That first visit was very hard. It was extremely hard. I was scared. I was I was afraid. Oh, maybe they don't want to hug me. I don't know. Uh, once those 10 years were up and we were able to hug my dad again, I couldn't let go. Not being able to give my dad a hug for 10 years was really, really hard. Kind of broke my heart. Because then I would realize I have to let him go at some point. Because the next thing I know, it was over. And then I got to watch him cry on the way out. Those 16 years he did pure hell. Everybody knows what the prisoner goes through. Not many people understand what the parents go through and the families. And we have a very close family. We go down and see him. The hardest thing for me was listening to those bars close behind me when I left. That just tore me up every time. And for Nat, he just kept thinking. I'm not there for my kids. I'm not there for my my daughters. I I could have played guilty and been home. Nat appealed his conviction. Again and again. He appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. 
he was always denied. After enough time, he started to wonder if maybe he was supposed to be in prison. Maybe it was karma. I don't want to say I ever felt like I deserved to be in prison because I never felt I deserved it. But after a while of being in prison, you kind of look for an excuse of why you're... Like, majority of guys that are in prison are in there for because they committed a crime. Whatever. It is what it is. But when you're in a situation like I am, when I didn't commit my crime, you try to look for excuses to justify doing the time that you can live with to make it okay to do the time. You you have a lot of time to think in prison. Um, And that's mostly all you do. You start looking at all your past regrets, all your things you screwed up in, things you did wrong, people you hurt. And you start making these little justifications of deserving the time, I guess you want to say. I think it made it a little easier to do the thing. I went through some serious depression. I went through a lot of PTSD. I was waking up in in, in DDU. I was waking up from getting beat up by the cops so much. I'd hear a door open. I'd jump up ready to fight. And it wouldn't even be my door. It'd just be the hallway door. Um, It's... I'm not going to lie and sugarcoat things. There's times where I was like, I should just kill myself and get this over with. But he didn't. And by 2015, after 15 years behind bars, Nat had a chance to finally go home. Parole. My name is Ira Gant. Ira is one of Nat's lawyers. He says that after you've been in prison long enough, they can let you out early for good behavior. It's called parole. So in Nat's case, he was sentenced to serve 12 to 20 years, which means that he would not see parole or be eligible for parole until he got to the lower number, until he got to the 12-year mark. At 12 years, Nat could try to get parole, try to show that he's worth letting out early, that he could be a productive member of society. Nat had been in for more than 12 years, But there was a problem. There's this theory um, that if you deny your crime, then you are more likely to recidivate. You're more likely to to commit commit another crime or to come back because you do not see um, your culpability. And thus you cannot appreciate how you were wrong and what got you into this situation in the first place. Because the parole board wants to hear that you committed the crime and that you've had some sort of reflection and that you're sorry for what you did. In other words... The parole board wants you to say that you did it. They want you to admit that you committed the crime you were convicted of committing. Um, And it's well known in the prison system that if you don't do that, you're not going home. 
So Nat was facing the same choice he faced when he went in. Does he take the blame and go home? Or does he keep insisting that he's innocent? I'm slightly having conversations with my, my family because my parole is coming up. And I need to make a decision. Do I just suck it up and say, you know what, I did it, can I go home? Or I'll say, no, I didn't do it and parole's gone. Because they're not letting anybody out if you don't admit your crime. What does it matter if you admit it, if I admit my crime or not? I'm doing the time. And I'm doing everything right in prison. If I deserve parole, I deserve parole. If I don't deserve it, then I don't deserve it. Admitting shouldn't have anything to do with it. This time, he didn't make the decision by himself. He knew he needed to make it with his girls. The hardest thing in prison wasn't prison. It was dealing with my daughters. Listening to them on the phone, begging for me to come home, crying of how they want to give me a hug. Um, Just these simple words of I want you. Very simple words. It messes you up bad. I did think of my daughters, but I didn't. I didn't think of the repercussions of not pleading guilty. I didn't think of 16 years of my daughters not having their father. So I had a long talk with my daughters and was like, listen, parole's coming up. You already know how I feel. They're like, then do what you want. I'm like, I did that the first time and I got 20 years. I, I have to do what you guys want. We told him and advised him to do whatever it takes for him to get home to us. They're like, we don't care, we just want you home. So, I mean, I... I was swallowing my pride and just, just, I just wanted to go home at this point. It would be on his record for life, and it may destroy his chances of getting a good job or creating a good life for himself when he does get released. So, his biggest worry was us thinking differently of him but that didn't cross our minds at all. So we told him to do whatever he needed to do to get home to us sooner. So Nat was ready to do the very thing he refused to do 15 years earlier. He was ready to lie. He was ready to say he attacked that woman in exchange for a chance to go home. And then he got a letter from one of his lawyers, attorney Chauncey Wood. And he says, they just changed the laws. I, I, I think I get you all. Remember that before Nat was convicted, the police showed a bunch of photographs to the victim. They asked her to pick one out. She picked Nat. When Nat went to trial, his lawyers had wanted to bring in a psychology expert, Dr. Stephen Penrod, to talk about why the photo identification wasn't reliable. But the judge said the jury didn't need to hear from an expert. They could use their common sense. They did. They convicted Nat. But in 2015, the Massachusetts State Supreme Court changed the law. The court decided, and these are their exact words, the court wrote, Common sense is not enough to accurately discern reliable eyewitness identification from the unreliable. 
because many of the results of the research are not commonly known, and some are counterintuitive. The state Supreme Court was saying that common sense wasn't good enough. Because eyewitness memory doesn't work the way jurors sitting in a courtroom might think. It's a pretty common um, belief that our memories work a little like videotapes. That we see something and we encode it, we remember it. And so if I see someone commit a crime or someone attacks me, if I get a good enough look at them, that I'll remember their face and I'll remember it forever. Um, You'll see a lot in, in cop shows that someone will say, I'll never forget that face for as long as I live. The problem is, they will. Especially if their brain was focused on something else. The stress uh, in the situation is, is a huge factor for a person's ability to perceive information and remember it. Because stress can be distracting. It can make you not see um, all the details because you're overloaded. And a, a person attacking you having a weapon can distract you because you're focused on the weapon. And so you may not see details about them or their person. So in the victim situation, the, the man attacking her was hitting her with something. And so she may have been distracted by that, by by the fact that it was coming for her. High-stress events, like crimes, they shift your focus, make faces harder to identify. Which is why the police need to be really careful when they show you photographs. You're vulnerable to suggestion. But now, if you have a police officer who knows who the suspect is and knows which picture is the suspect, they can even unconsciously lead you to picking that picture. So psychologists and and courts, including the state Supreme Court here in Massachusetts, have said that the best way to do it is to have the person that shows the photo array to the victim or the witness not be someone who's involved in the investigation of the case. Essentially a blind participant who doesn't know what the who the suspect is or what the right answer is, if you view it from that perspective. Because then they can't, that there's no way they could lead them to make one decision over another. And the right answer might not be in any of the photographs. The police need to tell you that. If they don't tell you that the person who committed the crime against you may not actually be in this photo array, and they don't tell you that no matter what you do, we're going to keep investigating the crime, their um, studies have shown that there is a, um, an urge that the person has to, to pick one of the photos. If you do that, if you just pick one that seems like the best of the available choices, that's when your memory can really start to change. Once the person makes an identification, if they do, they, the police officer should not tell them, that's it, you got it. You got the right person. Because when they do that, it confirms for the person that they got the right person. And so whether that is actually the perpetrator or not, the person now believes that it is. And so when they're in court and they're asked, who's the person that committed this crime? They're not going to go back to their memory of who committed it. They're going to go back to the picture of when they were told this is who the person is. Um, studies have shown and what we've you see in cases is a person may say, I think this is the person that committed the crime. I'm 50% sure. And then they're told, you got the right person, because that's the person the police believe committed the crime. And then by the time of trial, the 50% has changed to 100%. And noth- what has happened in that time? Nothing. 
This was the stuff Dr. Penrod could have told the jury about if he had been allowed to testify in Nat's case. About the ways that someone could become confident in picking out Nat's photograph, even though Nat didn't commit the crime. And now, the state Supreme Court was saying that juries needed to know about these problems. The problems with eyewitness identifications. So when Nat got the call from his lawyer, his lawyer was telling him, the rules have changed. Juries are allowed to hear the science. Nat could go back to court and argue that his trial wasn't fair. This could be a new path to freedom. He didn't have to lie to the parole board. He could fight. I knew I was getting old after that phone call. I don't know how I knew it. I just... The emotion's still there, so... That phone call basically set everything off. I was like, I gotta call my family. <laughs> so I called my family. I screamed. I couldn't believe it. I let all my windows down. I drove around for an hour, just so happy, blasting music. And, I mean, the call was so quick, and I wanted to talk to him for so much longer, but he could only call me for five minutes. So, I mean, I called everyone after, all my good friends, my... Uh, grandparents asked if they heard, and they had. We were just—I just couldn't wait to get home to them after talking to them to celebrate, kind of, because this is the first good step that and good thing that we've heard in so long. And um, my family was just ecstatic. And after that phone call, I was so hopeful, and I just started imagining all the things that my dad and I could finally do as father and daughter, just like grabbing lunch or. You know, riding a bike or renting a car and going somewhere cool. But if Nat did this, if he used the new law to fight his case, the parole board would not be happy. He'd be taking a risk, giving up his chance to go home, in exchange for a chance to fight for his innocence. He told his daughters... I explain everything to him. Like, listen, I can't make this decision without you guys. This is what the story is. I know you guys want me home. I'm telling you right now, if if I do this, I'm never getting parole. I'm finishing the sentence. I got five years left. So what do you want me to do? And she's like, you don't have to admit it? I go, nope. They go. I both of them were like, then F it. Fight it. I was like, you serious? They're like, yep. We want you to fight it. That was hard because I know how bad they want me home. But at the same time, it was relieved, relieving because it, that made me put the belief back in me that they believe me. You know what I mean? Um, so I called Tronchi, told him, all right, let's go, let's do this. Nat told the parole board the truth. He was innocent and they denied his parole. Now, there was only one way out of prison before the end of his sentence. Go to court, argue he didn't get a fair trial, and win. But there was a complication. I could clap it over the head with this little medical problem. Ended up with stage four liver cancer. Nat could get out of prison, 
but Peter might not live to see it. And what it meant to me was I was never going to be able to hug him, touch him, you know, walk down the street after conversation. And that, that was our, one of the hardest things I had to deal with. First thing I did was sit down and figure out my finances. So I got enough life insurance to pay off the mortgage. My wife don't have to worry about that. Uh, a few other things, this, that. So I said, okay. I'm ready. You know? But that was the first day. After, when you start looking at your family, uh, it really kills you. Especially with just having your first great granddaughter. So I knew something was going on. So I called him up. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I got something to tell you. He says, I'm dying. He says, I got stage four liver cancer and I got less than two years to live. My heart just crumbled. Looking at it now, I can just see I, how hard it must have been for him to tell me that. Because like I said in the beginning of all this, he's my best friend. One of the biggest things with me is he doesn't look at it this way. He sacrificed a lot for me. He sacrificed his retirement, his well-being, everything to take my daughters, raise them, and take care of me while I was in prison. Hey, she graduated college, didn't she? Yeah, she did. <clears throat> you know, our relationship wasn't just like granddaughter and grandfather. It was much more real and deeper than that, um, like a father-daughter bond and more. Um, because it felt like he kind of saved me and my sister. So he was like a superhero without a cape. So the only thing I wanted to do when I get out was I can never pay them back, so to speak. Um, but I wanted to try some way, somehow to pay them back and show them my gratitude, get to work, make some money, try to send them away to places and enjoy whatever they got left for retirement or whatever that I already took from them. Everything they did for my daughters, everything. <laughs> so when he told me that, it wasn't only I'm losing my best friend, it's I can never show him how much everything he did for me actually meant to me.
can never get out and hit them back. I can never do anything. There's nothing I can do. I got five years left. I'm never going to get parole. I don't know if I could survive that. Losing it. I like to close off my emotions to things like this. Um, it's how I survive, basically. Um, so talking about this stuff is not easy. Plus, it's still that prison aspect that you don't show weakness. Um, none of us are saying we don't cry in prison. We all do. We all have issues. But we suck it up. And we're very good at sucking it up. Peter was diagnosed at the end of 2015. The next spring, a Worcester judge reached a decision on Nat's case. Nat won. The judge wrote, I find and rule that the testimony of Dr. Penrod, had it been admitted at the trial, would have been a real factor in the jury's deliberations, and that there is a substantial risk that the jury would have reached a different conclusion. Nat's conviction was overturned. He was coming home. I'm a barber. I know garbage about legal stuff. But in court, when he he walked out, my first question was, I had the cops in front of me. I says, is he getting out now? He goes, yeah. He, I says, can I go over there and hug him? He goes, yeah, go ahead. And I couldn't move. <laughs> I just couldn't move. It's like hitting the Powerball for over $100 million. My legs couldn't move. I shook like I was ready to just come apart. I cried. I never, ever thought I would be on this earth to get my son back like that. Because they wouldn't give me six months. Uh, kind of fooled him with that. Alicia was at work. She missed a call. She listened to the voicemail. And I thought it was my grandfather, you know, telling me something about whatever happened. And it was my dad. And it was really funny because he was like, I hope I'm talking into the phone. I don't even know how to use this thing, but I'm finally released and it's all over and I can come home to you. So I'm on my way now. He didn't even know how to hang up the phone, so it was really funny. I still have that voicemail to this day. <laughs> the girls rushed home. The other part that got me was his two daughters. I don't know how to explain it. It was just, they were falling apart. I grabbed them both. We all fell apart. And he come over and was 
Wow. It's probably one of the best days of my life. And we went to the beach together. I think that was one of the, I think that was like the third day he was out. I took him to the Cape and we went to the beach. Um, and he just could not get enough of it. You know, he was so happy just laying there in the sun with his arms in the air. And he was screaming how happy he was. And it was just so cool to see. I took so many pictures and videos just because. He was free. Nats had a lot of time to think about the time he spent in prison, about how he's going to move on, about whether prison is working, even for the people who did commit crimes. Something I never understood is everybody wants to be tough on criminals and they deserve nothing in prison and this and that, all this stuff, but everybody forgets these guys get back out. These men and women get back out of society. They either come out pissed off or helped. There is no other way around. I don't know what made me not come out pissed off. Or, don't get me wrong, I'm pissed off. (laughs) But, I don't know what made me not, I think my family had a huge thing to do with it, I think. Nat was able to get a job working for the Boston Iron Workers Union. Nat is never stuck inside the hole anymore. He works on top of skyscrapers. No walls in any direction. And Nat's dad, Peter, he was there to see it. Within a couple months of me getting old, he got his weight back and, you know, his cancer started getting better. We had a scary month in December. He was in the hospital three times, I think it was, a week each time. Yeah, those beds ain't as comfortable as they make out. They really ain't. But, like I said, he's stubborn like me. He's a fighter. I just got to remind him that every now and then. So, would I beat this or not? Whatever time I got, I'm spending it with him. Three weeks after we recorded his interview, Nat's father, Peter, passed away. Nat's family told us that at Peter's funeral, it was Nat who had the hardest time with his father's passing. There was just so much time that had been lost. I got a lot to say, but I think I said enough for now. You can learn more about Nat and see pictures of him now working construction on the tops of buildings at massexoneration.com. We've got more episodes for you. Subscribe, follow us on social media. 
Mass Exoneration is produced in collaboration with the New England Innocence Project, fighting to free people in Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. To help them provide lawyers to people like Nat, visit newenglandinnocence.org. Mass Exoneration is recorded at the PRX Podcast Garage in Alston, Massachusetts. Their community recording studio provides equipment and training to storytellers, producers, and editors. Thanks to Alex and Ian for all of their support. You can learn more about what they do at podcastgarage.org. Lisa Cavanaugh is our executive director. Jeff Harris composed our theme. Ken Richardson takes our photographs. Betsy Del Campo created our logo. Ira Gant helped edit this story. Special thanks to Megan Sheridan, Tim Clark, Maddie Marino, and Erica Johnson for their help with this episode. Our podcast is edited and produced by Nicole Baker and me, Brian Pilchik. My name is Alicia Casanza, and this is Mass Exoneration.